keep that open. We're going to walk through that beautiful passage together as we do. I want you to think about some of the bosses that you've had. Anybody had some really bad bosses in their life? Anybody had one of those bosses that you're just like, oh, man, you would never do that. You make me, you know, that kind of thing. I had a good boss, though, once. My first, I've had several good bosses, but my first job, my first, like, real job where I filled out, you know, tax paperwork and got a check uh, was at Hibbit Sports in Harrisburg. And um, I worked there for a little while, and I became uh, assistant manager, which just meant that I made like seven fifty an hour instead of seven dollars an hour, um, and I got a key. But um, we got this new manager that came in and um, didn't know much about him. And within like the first couple shifts of working with this new manager, um, we I'm, I'm working with this family, and this kid's probably like eight or nine years old, and I'm getting some shoes for him, and. He's picking shoes out, and I, I go to the back, and you know, get his size. And as I'm coming back out down the, the down the wall, and there's this whole display wall of shoes, you know. And as I'm coming back out with this kid's shoes that he's picked out, I look up and I see him just go, and I'm like exorcism style projectile vomit, like I've never seen in my life. Like I grew up as an only child, and I just didn't see stuff like that. Like I didn't know that that was an actual thing that happened outside of movies. I'm talking like he's standing four feet from the wall, and he sprays the wall. And I was like, like, and you got to know this about me. Like, I don't do well in messes. Like, I'm getting better, but my wife will tell you that I just kind of shut down. I'm just like, I, I, I don't know. As a kid, I, I felt like I'd always grab the wrong thing. I remember one time as a kid, I was pouring um, those big old gallons of a pitcher. My mom had made red Kool-Aid, and I'm trying to pour it for myself, and the lid came off. Like, came out, and so a gallon of red Kool-Aid was all over it. I was just, like, panicked, and I grabbed some towels, and Mom's like, don't use my towels. And so, and then another time I used paper towels, she's like, don't use paper towels. Now you're going to waste them. I'm like, I don't know what to use, so I just freeze up when messes like that happen. And so I see this kid spray the wall, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I just turned around went back to the back room, and I was like, Fred, dude, did you see that? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, we got to, like close the store and leave, man. Like I, he was like, what do you mean? I was like, I can't, I can't clean that. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. Like there, it's in the shoes. Like I saw, like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. And he's like, uh, well, you just go ahead and take care of the customer and I'll, I'll clean up the mess. And I was like, really? Wow. Cause I'm just thinking, well, this guy's going to pull rank on me and be like, well, here, I'll, you know, I'll sell these people the shoes. You go ahead and, you know, get to work. And he's like, no, I got it, man. Go ahead. And, and I was like, wow, that's really cool of you. And so what actually happened in that moment, because, you know, listen, I'm like an 18-year-old kid at the time. I have not, you know, once you have kids, you just kind of get used to this stuff. And now vomit actually doesn't bother me. And I'm the, I'm the one that cleans it up at my house now. But at that time, I just didn't have the stomach for it. And I was like, bro, if I get into that, you're going to have another mess. Like, it's just going to, it's going to have a reaction here. Um, and it ain't going to be pretty. He's like, I got it. And, and I re- respected him so much after that. In fact, Believe it or not, those of you who worked in public know that that's not actually all that rare, that things that should be happening in the bathroom happen well outside the bathroom fairly frequently when you're in the public workforce. And uh, it actually happened again, not quite as dramatically, but another mess happened a couple weeks later, and I was actually, I was like, you know what, I got this one. And, and I felt empowered to do it because he had led by example, and, and he wasn't asking me to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And he was a good leader in that way. He was a good boss. Paul, in this writing, is about to get into some really hard things. He's about to really lay on some hard teaching in the book of Philippians, and really in chapter 2 here. Um, But he's going to show us that the goodness of our God, the goodness of 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 our Jesus, of our Savior, 
is such that he would never dare ask us to do anything or to live a life that he hasn't first lived out fully himself. And he's actually going to go as far as to, as to show us that the way that Christ comes and lives his life of humility is not just a, a good example for us to follow, but it's actually through Christ's life of humility that he actually brings salvation to us. The very thing that we cling to and hope that Christ accomplishes for us by doing exactly what Paul is going to command us to do. And so as he lays on this, this teaching that we're going to be in for the next couple weeks, actually, in chapter 2, um, he's, he wants to remind us of why we can do this with confidence and what compels us to do this. And he's going to use Jesus as our great example. And so if you, if you look here with me, we're going to dive into chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 11 that Russ just read. And here's what Paul says. Um, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and he's not asking like, you know, if it's actually there, he's reminding, this is a way of saying like, hey, because, or I know, like, you know, obviously there's encouragement from Christ. Like he's talking to the people that have been saved. We we talked about their story a few weeks ago from Acts 16, where these, these are people that have been saved out of their lifestyles radically so, and they've heard the gospel message. So is there any encouragement in the gospel message, church? Like, is there any is, is there any comfort in that, that anybody can be saved, right? That it's not about what you have to do, and you have to earn it, and you have to be good enough, but that, in fact, Jesus gives it freely through grace to anyone who would turn to him. Like, is there any encouragement in that? I would hope so. Amen? And Paul says, hey, b- because of that, because I know that you have clung to the gospel and you've responded as such, I, b- because there is encouragement in Christ and there is comfort from love, Right? Like Paul has just been talking to them about how he himself is suffering. He's in prison and he's told them, hey, you're going to suffer yourself. Like you're going to continue this same pattern of life that I am. Like you need to be ready for it. And you need to know that, that even though life is going to get hard and you're going to suffer, like there's comfort in love. Like there's, there's good news there. There's richness in, in love. I, I think of it this way. Like our God, all throughout the Bible, our God is described as a, as a refuge. We're a rock for us to run to. And the best way that I can kind of flesh that out for you is, is the relationship that I have with my wife is such that, um, man, just her presence, her voice, but mostly like her embrace, just with a hug, how it diffuses anxiety in my heart in a way that really nothing else does. Right, like we, there's been times throughout this, this last year where it's just been like chaos and it feels like the world around us uh, relationships and all, it's just like been really, really hard and we just needed to just hold each other. And in that moment, like the chaos doesn't change, like it's still happening, but there's something that settles deep within my soul just from, just from that love that I, that I know is there, that I don't have to question from her. And, and listen, whether you have that from, from a spouse or family member or not, you have it from our God. What, what Paul is saying is like there is encouragement, there is comfort in knowing that no matter what, no matter what the world says about you, no matter what's happening around you in your world, God cares about you and that he's near. He'll never leave you, nor forsake you. And you can, you can find hope in that. He's going to talk more about that in chapter 4 when we get there in a few weeks. Paul says, listen, if you're enjoying those things, if you experience those blessings from the Lord, 
If there's any affection and sympathy from him, Paul's saying, listen, if you, you know that I love you, you know that I care about you, you know that I'm your pastor, like you know my sympathy. He's talked about that in chapter 1, how he longs for them. These aren't just anybody. Like Paul's not just writing this to a general audience, you know, for instruction for anybody to read. These are, he's talking to his people, right? He's talking to the people that he led to the Lord. He's talking to the people that, that he helped start this church. He's talking to Lydia and the jailer and the, the t- demon-possessed young teenage girl, right, like that got saved. He's talking to them and to more. And, and so these are his people. This is his gospel family, the ones that have sent encouragement to him when he's in prison. They're concerned about him. They love him. They care about him. They sent him a gift. They sent him encouragement. They sent him a, a care package. And he, this is who he's talking to. He says, listen, I, I love you. You know that. So out of that, Paul says, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Now listen, that's, those are big statements. That Paul's going to get into, and we're going to look at that actually in the next couple of weeks of how we actually flesh that out and unity and all those things. And Paul's really reviewing some of what he said in chapter 1, and he's really prefacing some of what he's going to get into in detail and later. But I want to get to the heart of this that, that kind of hinges the whole book. is this incredible passage about Jesus. But what he's, what he's really saying to these people is, is listen... I know you've been saved, and I know that you, you, you've been saved from the penalty of sin, and death no longer has a hold on you, and you know where you're going to go when you die, and, and there's great comfort in that, and you should rejoice. But he said, I want to invite you deeper. He says, if you've experienced all that, and you love Jesus for that, I want, you, I want you to come even deeper. I want you to experience the fullness of joy, because as we've talked about, and we're going to talk about it even more in the, in the coming weeks, but we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We no longer have to worry about enduring death and hell if we have trusted in Jesus our Savior, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But he says, listen, there, there's more. If you want to experience true freedom from sin and go beyond just praying a prayer and getting, you know, saved from what happens when you die, you want to go beyond and into, lean even further into the gospel, you're going to find richness and fullness in Christ. And, and here's, here's how he says he wants you to do that. He, he says, if you want to start really becoming the person that you long to be and you want to experience... Um, freedom from sin and become more and more like Jesus, here's what he says to do. Here's, here's the big instruction from Paul. Verse 3, do nothing. It's a big statement. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's his big instruction. He says, you, you want to start experiencing true growth? You want to go even further into the gospel? Here's what you do. You, th- you look at your life. You look at your motivations. You look at what drives you. And you need to make sure you're doing nothing. He doesn't say, yeah, you can do a few things or just do the quiet things or the things that you know, nobody else sees or the things that, no. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, that may seem like a really simplistic reduction and kind of anticlimactic, but I, I think as we, we look deeper, we look at really into the origin of our broken world. Like Paul has made it really clear to them that the world is broken, right? And, and he's talking about like God's at work doing something grand and bigger in the world and in our own life, and our stories fit into God. Like we've talked about all that, so Paul has made it really clear that he, he knows the world is broken, he knows there's gonna, they're going to suffer, and he's, he's really getting to the heart and saying, listen, 
You want to you know how to experience true freedom in Christ. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. And he's going to talk about further. But to really see why that matters, I want us to look at the origin of our broken world. I want you to look back with me to Genesis chapter 3. If you want to put your finger there in Philippians and turn back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, I want you to look at how our broken world began and see, I think, why Paul says what he says here about Selfish ambition and conceit. I want, I want you to see um, the origin of the pain, suffering, and brokenness that we know and loathe in our world. And it happens in this very well-known story of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we know if you, if you read the first two chapters that God made everything really good, right? He made the creation and Eden good for his people to enjoy. There was, no, there was no sickness. There was no death. There was no pain. It was just goodness and richness and fellowship with God. That's what God wanted for his people, but something terrible happened. And it outlines it here in Genesis 3. Now, there's a serpent is more crafty in verse 1 than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Remember, God has said you can eat of every tree in the garden. Like you enjoy all this that I've given you, but there's one tree that you need to stay away from because if you eat it, it will go really bad for you. It will bring death to you. That was God's instruction. So God says yes to all of these things. God is a good father. He says yes to all of this vastness that he's created for them. He says, hey, there's one thing you need to stay away from that. If you get into that, it's going to end your life. It's going to be really, really bad. But the the serpent twists the words. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the uh, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, if you've read earlier um, Genesis 1 and 2, you know that God had made everything good and that they were there and they were naked and they were unashamed. What happens immediately after they eat the fruit? It says that they realize they're naked and shame enters the world. Shame and then sin and death and brokenness, all of it starts right here in this moment. And what we see is that what happened, what went wrong is the very thing that Paul is warning the Philippian church against, selfish ambition and conceit. Because what what Satan uses to, to deceive Adam and Eve and what they believe on and, and brings sin into the world is they get the glory order all mixed up, right? Is they begin to believe what Satan is saying is that God is holding out on them. And, and you see that, that now Eve's eyes are, are not seeing that tree as, as something that God has withheld for them, uh, from them for their good, but rather is seeing that tree as something that God has withheld from them to steal from them. Right? She starts to see it as something that is good to make her wise, to give her insight, to, to become like God. And she says, well, I, I don't want God to just be God, but I want to be God. I want to know what God knows. I want to have the power and the knowledge that God has. And that is what happens in that moment. She begins to exalt herself, and Adam begins to exalt himself above God and say, I deserve to know that. I deserve to experience that. I deserve to enjoy that. And so 
I'm going to take for myself. I'm gonna, so they start thinking that. So selfish ambition is 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 this this deal where you you want to get ahead, you want to experience more than the other person. So you see somebody that's succeeding, you see somebody that's enjoying their life, somebody that's been blessed, and you think, man, I just need to like. I just need to kind of one-up them. I need to get what they got, and, and then, you know, I, I need to experience what they experience. And, and you just kind of, you're chasing after your own ambition. Okay, and you, you can't rejoice in anybody else's success because you are worried about your own. And so you're, you're just trying to pursue that. And then conceit is this idea that you start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, right? You put yourself on the throne. And so then when somebody else does experience goodness and, and blessing, you, not only are you trying to get there, but you start, re- you start like, resenting them. Right? You, you start having bitterness happen whenever somebody gets what you think you deserve, then you, you start getting bitterness. Or it turns this way, you start to rejoice when those people suffer. When they, kinda, when they get theirs, you find yourself rejoicing and being grateful. And, and deep. You, know, you might not show it on the outside, but you're, you're glad, right? That's what conceit leads to. So selfish ambition, I'm going to get mine, I'm get what I want, I'm gonna, it's all about me. And then conceit starts thinking more highly of themselves. And really what, what, what happens in this moment is Adam and Eve says, well, I don't want God to just be on the throne. Like, I want to I be on the throne. And so they, they put themselves where only God belongs. And that is what destroys and fractures the world. And from that point on, the Bible says that we're all born into sin. Now, that's a, that's a statement that you've probably heard from a preacher before. But I don't know if we've thought about what that means or how that happens, that all of mankind is born into sin. Here's, here's what the Bible would, would kind of lay out for us. In Romans 1, the Bible says that uh, what can be made known about God is really clear through the creation. So what the Bible says is no matter where you're born, whether you're born in a place where, you know, where there's churches talking about the truth of the Scripture or your family is or not, like what can be known about God is really clear just by looking at the creation. What he means by that is the creation itself, the sunsets and the sunrises and the moon and the stars and, and all those things, the oceans, the vastness of the oceans. The creatures that God has made, creatures like whales that are so massive that we don't even know how to comprehend that, let alone like create something like that, and giraffes and lions and all of these majestic creatures, not to mention the mountains and, and the ways that, the, like, Here's one that just blows my mind. I try to point out to my kids regularly just to create this awe in them. But the fact that there, not only are there trees, right, but the simple stuff, right, that, that trees take what we breathe out that we can't use, right, carbon dioxide, and they use it to, to, to breathe themselves in, and then they put out oxygen for us to breathe. Like, we should not be okay with just going, yeah, that's cool, that's science. No, that's our God, right? That's our God creating this world in a way that is sustaining to us, and we should be in awe of it. <coughs> so all of these things and more are screaming to anybody who is born on this earth that there is someone greater, there is someone bigger that is responsible for all this. All of those things are screaming into that effect. And yet, all of us, without fail, each and every one of us decide to see that, and instead of going, man, wh- whoever made that, like, I, that, that, that must be God, and, and I want to worship him, I want to know him, I want to enjoy him. Instead of that, instead of taking all that evidence and going, okay, I'm going to give my life into worshiping, instead of that, all of us, without fail, each and every one of us decide to take the throne ourselves. We decide to take the throne 
ourselves and make this life about us. We put ourselves on the throne where only God belongs. That's selfish ambition and conceit. And it is played out in the earliest of ages, right? The earliest of ages. You see, you don't have to teach a kid to be selfish, do you? It just happens really, really easily for them. But if you love them, you're going to try to work that out of them, right? If you love them, you're going to try to teach them that life's not all about them, right? Because there's consequences. If you don't teach them that, you don't teach them that life's not all about them, you don't teach them that they don't always get their way, then one day the world's going to teach them for you, right? Like someday they're going to understand that the world doesn't revolve around them. And so if you love them, you'll start... Like, you start teaching them those lessons, and, and when you teach them those lessons, it's not out of, you're not just trying to be mean to them as a parent, it's, it's actually because you love them, right? I mean, yeah, it makes your life as a parent easier whenever they obey and they don't, you know, uh, throw tantrums and destroy your house, but ultimately, you're actually out for their good whenever you teach them a right perspective on the world. This, Paul says, we have the wrong perspective on the world. We put ourselves on the throne, and we start pursuing our own ambition, and we think too highly of ourselves. Paul says this is what leads to all kinds of sin and destruction. This is what leads to the slavery of sin. Why? Because when you're pursuing those things, it's always a moving target, right? If you're pursuing ambition and you think this is what I need to be happy, I just need to be better than that person, or I just need to get this thing, or whatever, it's a moving target because you get that thing, and you find out that there's just whole another list of things, right? And then you, you, maybe you get some of those things, you, you realize there's a whole other list, and, and it's this constant moving target that doesn't bring us joy. It doesn't satisfy us the way that Satan promised that it would back in Genesis 3, right? He says, you get that. You, things will be good, right? You'll know what God knows, and it'll be good. But what, what happens, we realize that was a lie. And when we, we get those things, we realize they don't satisfy, and instead we're just thirsty for more and more and more. Before we know it, it has destroyed our life in this pursuit of glory that it does not exist outside of God himself. So this is why our world's broken. Go on to say in Romans 1 that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, that we begin to worship what is created instead of the creator, right? And that is what drives all of the brokenness, all of the, like from, from the, the sin of an evil dictator like Hitler all the way down to the personal sin that we don't want to confess to anybody that's just like lust, all of that is driven by selfish ambition and conceit. Thinking of ourselves more highly, thinking that we deserve that pleasure, that we deserve that power, we deserve that approval, that affirmation, that fill in the blank, it's all driven. And so that is at the heart of what is broken in our world. That is why the Bible is full of commands from God to worship him alone, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, one pastor, as he was teaching through this book of Philippians, talked about chapter 2 in that this, this idea is so uh, pervasive throughout Scripture that if you took the Bible and kind of rang it out, that this Philippians 2 would be what, what came out. As you kind of ring out the Scriptures, like it was all boiled down, like this is what's going to come out time and time again. The heart of God is to invite, command, compel his people to worship him alone and to love their neighbor as themselves. Why? Why? Is that just because this is God's house and he really wants to, you to obey his rules so he doesn't? No, no, no. Like, I mean, that's partly true, but it's more true because he loves us. Right? Because he knows that this is how life is going to work best. 
I'm just like a kid who doesn't understand why you won't let them eat a whole sleeve of cookies right before dinner. You think about it, in that, like we laugh about it now, but in the moment as a kid, like you're angry, right? Mom and dad don't love me. They're mean to me. They won't let me do what I want, right? Listen, our perspective as parents is vastly different than our children as we're teaching them. You go ahead and roll that up to God's perspective to us even now, as mature and insightful as we think we are as adults, and the same is true. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we need, and so we build our life in pursuit of those things. And God is saying, no, 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 that's going to lead to your harm. Come this way instead. That's why he consistently saying, worship me, worship me alone, and love your neighbor as yourself, because that's how life is going to work best. That's how you're going to find life. And the scripture is just full of those commands after command, and God building that, his people around that posture, but what we see is it doesn't work, right? God commands his people, compels his people, serves his people, rescues his people, and it still doesn't work. We're unable to get over ourselves. We're unable to atone for the the sin and fix the mess that we've made and the brokenness in our world. And so what happens is Jesus has to come into our mess. And this is where the beauty of this passage really is amazing, because what he says is, instead of sitting there in his own glory and, and saying, you guys made a mess of this. How dare you? And, and using that for his own good, what does it say? Let's go back to Philippians. Paul says all this, and, and remember, thinking about somebody that's inviting us to do something, and, but they're not asking us to do anything that they haven't done themselves. Jesus epitomizes this. And he says, verse 4, Let each of you look to your, not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, In Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, right? And that that word there means that he's equal with God. He has just as much uh, power, authority, beauty, all of those things. Like he is God. He is in the form of God completely. All that we know and think about God and his vastness, Jesus was that as well. Jesus was there in the beginning. He's the one that created this world. He's the one that holds it together. And he says, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What's that sound like? You lay that back over Genesis 3. You look at what went wrong in the initial sin of our world that brought all of this brokenness in. It's what Adam and Eve thought that they needed equality with God, that they needed to know what God knew, to, to be like God was. And they, they reached for it and they grasped it and they took it for themselves and it destroyed all that they had been made for and all that they longed for in life. And, and Jesus comes to reverse that whole curse, and, and, and it's the complete opposite. It's the reversal of all that w- went wrong with Adam and our first parents. Jesus comes to be the, the second Adam. This is a really beautiful picture that Paul will lay out in other books of the Bible where he, he talks about Jesus comes as the second Adam to, to restart humanity, to, to bring in a new people, and what Jesus does is though he is God, he's in the form of God, he has it all, he's on the throne, he has all the glory and power and my, at his expense, and instead of Uh, using it for his own gain, instead of exploiting it for just his own glory, what does he do? He lays it aside and he empties himself. He doesn't take off his divinity. He He doesn't stop becoming God, but instead he takes his glory, he takes his holiness, and he adds to it humanity, and he becomes flesh. He takes on the form of man, 
Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming lowly, right? Instead of trying to exalt himself, he humbles himself. The Bible over and over again says so God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. Like over and over again, he invites us to give of, himself, give of ourselves instead of trying to gain for ourselves, to give our lives away. And Jesus is not just going to command this as a way of life. He's going to live this out and through living this out, bring us salvation. It says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus becomes Jesus, who is fully God, becomes fully human at the same time. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Jesus comes, and he does what Adam and Eve failed to do. And he says, I've got that glory already, and instead of keeping it for myself, I'm going to lay it aside, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to serve others, others that don't deserve to be served. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against God, Christ died for us, and he enters in, and he becomes obedient, the Bible says, even to the point of death on the cross. Listen, I want you to think of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke the earth into existence, the one who holds it all together, the one that is keeping your heart beating and your lungs breathing right now, that glorious Jesus, the one who's coming back on a white horse to do away, to reign forever, to do away with all that is evil on our world, that Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross, which... Adam and Eve, whenever they ate of the fruit, it immediately brought shame upon them, and they were immediately ashamed and tried to cover themselves. Jesus had nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus had never done anything selfish in his life. He embodied the fullness of selflessness, the fullness of living for God and God alone, and yet he took on the ultimate shame, the cross we're, we're too familiar with in our culture. We're not moved by it. We don't understand the, 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 the depth of the pain and the depravity, but also the shame. These, these people that were crucified on the cross, were, it, was, it was not just a way to execute them, but it was meant to bring full humiliation. They were often stripped naked or at least down to what we would consider underwear, and they were hung up by their hands and feet with nails, and, and they were hung there in public for everybody to see, and Jesus takes on all of that shame, not because of what he has done, but because of what we And in that, he takes the curse upon himself. The curse that Adam and Eve brought in Genesis 3 that broke this whole world. Jesus takes the fullness of it on himself. And he drinks in the fullness of death. Jesus actually died. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. What we earned, what we deserved, what we accumulated for ourselves was death. And somebody had to pay that price. And, and Jesus' life ended in, in death. But the story doesn't end there because death has no hold on him. He's never been selfish. He's never lived out of selfish ambition or conceit. Jesus has, death has no hold on Jesus. And so what we find is that three days later, the grave is empty, right? That he comes back in full power and victory over sin and the grave and offers that to us. And the Bible says that because of that, because he went through that, now he's exalted above heaven and earth. That when he was raised again, that he ascended into heaven and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, to the place of utmost glory, power, and respect. And there he sits until the 
world and all of its enemies are made his footstool. And then he's going to come back in full glory and do away with all that is evil, all that is bad, all that is broken, and restore this world rightly. And the Bible, and this is what it says, that one day, this is how it ends, with every knee bow. Verse 9. Highly, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we listen, that's an incredible image, and I don't know where your mind goes when you think about that. For many of us, I think we, we think about that as, a, as a, this end judgment, this maybe negative thing, that okay, one day everybody's going to you know, stand, but that moment, what he's describing there is full restoration of what we were made to be in. What he's describing in that moment is restoration of what was lost in Eden. It's not this moment of everybody's going to be sorry and everybody's going to be, oh, you know, scared of dad coming in. Like, no, no, no. It's going to be this acknowledgement of where glory belongs. It'll be this acknowledgement of, oh, I, I, I was foolish to ever live for my own glory and ever to try to live for my own ambition, to think of myself as highly as I did. That was foolish because now I see that the only one that is glorious, the only one that is deserving of praise, the only one I should have been spending my life for is this Jesus. The Bible says that whether we like it or not, whether we know it now or not, one day that's how history ends with every knee bent and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that, there's this reversal of the curse. That that is the restoration of what the world was made to be. That is how Eden comes back into existence whenever the world is made good again, whenever we acknowledge that Jesus is the one who deserves glory. Him and him alone. And listen, that may sound like, okay, well, he's just selfish. He, just, he, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't, like, you know, you think about the kid who doesn't understand why the parent is, is correcting them and, and doing, like, and we like, okay, he just doesn't get me. He doesn't know that I want this or I really deserve this or whatever. You say, no, no, no. It's, it's not about me. Like, it's just the truth of how it is. Like, it would be unloving of him not to lead us into that worship of himself. Like he is the only being, the only source of life that will fill us up, that doesn't let us down, that doesn't have a diminishing return whenever we get it. Like he is the fountain of living water. And so he says, like, this is the only way that you find life. And one day, whether you know it on this side of the world or not, one day, everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to acknowledge Jesus in his rightful place. Every knee bowed, every tongue confessing. The first thing that we're going to realize in that moment, first thing that, that we realize when Jesus is revealed to us as holy and righteous and completely good is that we have sinned that we have failed him, that we have failed, that life was only meant to be lived in pursuit of his glory, and yet we have lived life in pursuit of our own glory. And that is what sin is all about, right? We think of sin as this list of things God didn't want us to do. At the heart of all sin, all the commandments, is us exchanging God's glory for our own, putting ourselves on the throne instead of God. And in the moment we see Jesus for who he really is, we will realize that we have it all wrong that we've been pursuing our glory instead of his and that we deserve nothing less than to be destroyed 
That's what Isaiah immediately realizes when he gets this vision of the throne room of the Lord. And you should read it. Isaiah 6, it's this incredible scene. And there's these angels that are beyond description. And they've all got six wings. And with two of them, they're covering their face. With two of them, they're covering their feet. And the other two, they're flying. And they're bellowing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And every time that they say holy, the whole place shakes and dust crumbles down as, as the throne room of God shakes just from their voice. They are unbearable for Isaiah, and yet they are declaring the glory of the one who sits on the throne. And when we see the one who sits on the throne, we will immediately realize that it's his throne and his alone. And we were wrong to run up on it. Instead, we should have been bowed before it. And that we don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve a pass. And instead, what we deserve is to be completely consumed by his holiness, to spend eternity in hell. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, you don't have to. You don't have to experience the death that you deserve because I took it for you. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, you, you understand, you realize that you are a sinner in rebellion to a holy God and, and you need a savior, period. That unless somebody saves you, you have no hope before this holy God. When you realize that and you confess that and you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is that savior because God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you do that. You see Jesus for who he really is. That there'll be this moment where you turn from pursuing yourself. And the Bible calls it repentance. It says you'll turn the other way because you'll see that Jesus is the only one worth pursuing. And that's called repentance. The Bible says you do that. You will be saved. You turn from worshiping you and you instead worship Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. Claim his work on the cross as your saving hope. The Bible says you'll be saved. And that changes everything. Then we... we we change the orientation of our life to begin living for his glory and his glory alone. So many of us come, even as Christians, even after we've been around the church for a long time, we come with our own agenda. We come with our own things in our hands and thinking, okay, this is what I want out of life. This is my ambition. This is my hope. This is what I think I deserve. And we come to church hoping that God will, will help us along our plan, right? We come to church hoping that if we do the right thing, we say the right things, we come to church enough that we'll put God in our debt and that he will come along and help us with our plan and, and, and you know, kind of smooth the path ahead of us and bless us and do these things. What the Bible says is, listen, your plan doesn't matter if, unless it's aimed at bringing glory to Jesus. And it's not just him being cruel and saying, I don't care. He says, listen, I love you. And so you need to know that the only plan worth having is pursuing Jesus and his glory. That pursuing his glory is going to lead to your joy. And that is the only thing that is going to be lasting in this world. And knowing this truth, knowing that that's how this all ends, informs and changes how we live today. Uh, the good the writer Malcolm Gladwell, in his uh, master class on writing, says this. He says, so many writers spend too much time worrying about their introduction. They're worried about how to start the thing. They're worried about how to get the thing going and, and how to capture the reader's attention with their introduction. He says, what you ne really need to worry about is thinking about where you want to end. Think about your conclusion. How do you want this thing to end? What do you want to accomplish with this? And once you know that, then you'll know what to do with the introduction and the whole rest of the writing. Listen, knowing what we want to accomplish in the end, knowing how this all wraps up, knowing the final scene should inform what we do with our life today. And it really, it diffuses a whole lot of things. So, so often we worry about, well, I don't know what God's called me to. I don't know what career he has. I don't know what person he has. And we have all these things and all these anxieties. The only thing you need to worry about, the only thing that you need to make sure you get right is that you're living for his glory. And then it doesn't matter 
if you're selling shoes and cleaning up vomit for the rest of your life, you do it unto his glory. Right? If you become a really successful scientist or lawyer or doctor or whatever, you do that for his glory. If you pick up trash, you sweep floors, you uh, fill out prescriptions, you load lumber, whatever it may be, you do it for his glory. And you're not trying to gain anything out of your work that is only meant to be gained in Jesus Christ alone. Instead, you know, that's where I'm headed. That's all that matters is Christ and his glory. And whatever we do in between here is all about him. And yes, that makes him glorious, but that's what brings us joy. That's where it ends. That's the end of the story. Every knee bowed, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that, Jesus reversing the curse for us, instead of clinging to what he could have used to explore his own gain, instead he, he laid it aside, he emptied himself, and he became sin. Though he knew no sin, though he was no sin, he became sin for us to bring us salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. And whether you acknowledge it and start living for it today or not, one day you'll end up there confessing that that is the meaning of life. That is what it's all about, Jesus. So my invitation, our hope, the reminder from God's word is start living like that today. Paul says, complete my joy. Don't just claim Jesus as a way out of hell and then, you know, come pay lip service when you go to church. He says, lean further in. Start living for him fully. Start, letting etern- start living now for eternity. Start letting eternity and how this thing ends inform how you live now and start living for Jesus' glory right now, today. And through that, you're going to find your joy. You're going to find your growth. You're going to find how God uses you in the midst of the chaos and the world that's around it. You're going to find how God uses you to help rewrite his story of redemption. So wherever you are, whatever you're bringing today, whether, you know, whether you've trusted Jesus and embraced that salvation, and uh, you can do that today. Whether you, if you've not done that, you can do that right now where you're sitting. You say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I believe that you are the Savior. Please have mercy upon me today. And he, the Bible says he'll save you, give you a new heart right now. Give you a new heart in, in a moment. For the rest of us, let's evaluate what's been informing our motives. Have we been living for our own selfish ambition? Have we been thinking too highly of ourselves? Thinking that we're entitled to something from God? Or have we just been laying ourselves before the Lord and asking him to direct our path? Asking him to inform our life? Asking him to be our treasure? Wherever you are, the altar will be open today. You, you can come and um, respond to the goodness of the gospel. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is just a reminder that Jesus died our death. That he doesn't require you to bring anything to atone for your sin. He doesn't require you to bring some sort of offering. Instead, he says, listen, I, I, the table's ready. It's my body, my blood that is going to buy your salvation. And here it is. Drink it. Eat it fully, freely. Be encouraged. And we'll respond by singing a couple songs. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of the gospel. May we never get over it, and may you move us in this moment to respond to it afresh, new today. Giving of our lives, an ordering of our loves, living for your glory and not our own. We ask these things in Jesus' victorious and glorious name. Amen.